I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this session. Um, my name is Tony Birch, and I'm here to discuss this wonderful new book, Drop Bear, with Evelyn Araluen, um, who's our guest today. Um, before we start, I want to obviously recognise that we're on Gadigal land, and the importance of that is not only to recognise that we're on unceded sovereign land, but to pay respects to all Gadigal people and, of course, elders in particular, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today in the audience. Um, but I do want to extend that welcome to you. So to everyone in the audience, thank you for, for coming along. And I hope you have a great session here. We hope you have a wonderful day. So Evelyn is our guest. The book is Drop Bear. Um, I want to just say something about this remarkable um, young poet or younger um, than many of us in the audience. Um, I'll do a formal um, recognition of Evelyn's bio, but I do want to say a, a couple of words additional to that about her and the book, and then we'll get into some questions. So Evelyn Araluen is a poet, researcher and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Her widely published criticism, fiction and poetry have been awarded the Nukata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship, and the Nalama Sydney Literary Travel Fund grant. And um, Evelyn was born and raised on Durrug country, and she's descended of the Bundjalung nation. Um, so that's the formal bio, but I just want to add to that, I've been fortunate to know um, Evelyn for several years now. Um, I've worked with her. I, we work together on the Next Chapter project with the Wheeler Centre. But um, I've also been published by Evelyn um, in her role as the editor of Overland Literary Journal, and she's brought a remarkable, um, refreshing um, insight into Australian and Indigenous culture through Overland. And um, she is a remarkable um, young writer, and I think that what um, Evelyn is doing with poetry and doing with her writing in general is being replicated across this country at the moment by younger First Nations writers. We have a remarkable new generation of First Nations writers across this country who are changing the way we talk about this country. So we're very fortunate to have her here today and we're very fortunate for her work. And this um, wonderful collection, which is, by the way, um, the design of this is done by a Larrakia woman, um, Jenna Lee, who's a remarkable um, designer. Um, this book, I think, is one of the um, great collections of poetry that we're seeing coming out from, from our younger people in the community. Um, so I'm going to start, Evelyn, by asking you a couple of very... Do you want me to pump your tyres up a bit more than oh, that? No, um, I'm so um, I want Mum and Dad soak all of this in. I can yeah, do no wrong now ever again. Yeah. Evelyn's parents are in the audience and she said, just, you know, build it up, build it up. <laughs> And her mum and dad go, we, we never knew she was that good, but anyway. Um, so one of the, one of the um, lines in one of the poems that you produce in the collection states, we are relearning this place through poetry. Can you tell us how so? Um, yeah, so it's funny actually that line is connected to the sort of the fir my first order of business visit, which is also extending my acknowledgement and my respect to the Gadigal peoples of the Aura Nation. But through that as well, 
honouring and respecting that there are long and complex histories of different Aboriginal nations that have been gathered in Redfern um, over the last century. And um, I got the opportunity to learn Bundjalung, to learn my ancestral language through Eora College. And those institutions are really important and um, they're very central to the way that... uh, you know, First Nations are able to actually reconnect and re-establish communities and solidarities through and after and into futurity around colonisation. So a lot of respect and honour to this place that we're in, not just through Gadigal but also through Redfern Black community. Um, And that line comes from a poem, uh, like really the first poem that I ever had published, Learning Bundjalung on Darawa, which was just sort of processing and thinking about the experience of learning language and the effect that that actually had on my brain, on my literary mind. Prior to that, poetry didn't really make sense to me. It didn't feel connected to my ideas or experiences or the languages that I was attempting to create in my writing. I was writing prose and it wasn't very good prose and it wasn't really going anywhere. Um, And that process of um, learning language just made me reconsider everything that I'd relied upon through this imposition of the English language and settler coloniality and all the ideas through the English language. And um, there's a line that I keep on thinking about in an essay by an Australian nature writer, George Seddon, where he describes the English language as a filter over the Australian landscape. And I don't speak language well enough to understand everything that that filters. I probably never will. Um, Language is so intimately connected to many other philosophies and ways of being and doing that the task of understanding land through language would just be lifelong. But using language to kind of expand my perception, expand what I can get visually or in other senses of walking through a place, using it to just, like, have more meaning instead of try to interpret and understand poetry, giving more possibilities, more ways of thinking about and experiencing a place. Um, That's something that, yeah, that's a lifelong thing. And that poem was written at the very start. And I'm still kind of at the start of all of that process. But it was, for me, like that beginning of thinking about this entanglement of country, language, and the kind of memory slash memoryless place that I found myself in. So, I've got a related question because, um, and this is the only time I'm going to read my question is so long. Um, So you're writing as well as asserting Aboriginal sovereignty through the act of writing, speaking and truth-telling interrogates the colonial project, which includes, of course, the colonial and contemporary poetry in Australia, the canon. So you write again in Bastard from the Bar, another line, I know the poem and it lied. Mm. Now that's a really telling line in regard to what a lot of your work is. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, and my apologies to my editors at various stages for how many times I just speak 
so directly about poetry. Um, it got very meta at one point. Um, but that's that poem was written in dialogue, like with Dad and talking about some of his experiences of hanging out with the push and all of these mm-hmm. sort of people that were glorified and glamorised as a part of this this sort of mid-century Australian canon and mm-hmm. the things he said about them is that they're all just gross and disgusting and just terrible Dad people. Said that. Yeah. Oh, we'll get him on stage later. <laughs> And like they treated women badly, and they yeah. weren't they weren't necessarily advocating. They for, they stopped caring about black issues after the sixty seven referendum. Yeah. They moved on to other kind of causes in like a literary way, but never really actually in like an involved and political way. And so when we look at some of this history we have in Australian literature, and like you know the whole history of it is very cooked and in a multitude of ways, um, some of them quite unique and different. In this sort of, in this sense, you know, I think that Australian national identity has been such a literary composition. Like Mm -hmm. if you look at early journal writings from, say, What Contench and Mm -hmm. you look at the language that Philip used and Cook used, it's so literary. And you write about specifically, yeah. Yeah, and his kind of gaze and that kind of weird biblical imagining of the Australian landscape that's very, very pervasive. So there's a lot of literature and poeticism there, which is all about different projects of justifying colonisation, mm-hmm. um, attempting to assert and um, kind of depart from a British colonial identity into like a new bright shining Australian yeah. nationalism. And it's it's all... Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to swear, but it's all bullshit. Like, it is tremendously bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes very well written, but the mm. imaginative possibilities are really actually there to assert nationalism. They're not mm. actually there yeah. to recognise the truth of country and place. Your dad's obviously a good teacher. Mm. Um, I mean, that. so you do this in, in many... Well, several of the poems. So, to the poets, the last Bush ballad... Decolonial Poetics, Avant-Gaba, and Playing in the Pastoral in particular. And so one of the issues that I recognise, and I, I, I hadn't imagined going as far back to the Sydney push, but that's relevant because I think what you're doing is interrogating nationalism is nationalism, and the left nationalism doesn't um, understand the place of settler society in, in Aboriginal country any more than conservative nationalism. So the question, I mean, and I, I'm not... Believe me, not in any patronising way. You are quite young, and you have a—you really have been able to grab hold of this intellectual and creative idea very strongly. So, the question I have there is: When did when did you come to this realization that one way of interrogating this colonial narrative was through poetry? Because, as we learn um, in your bio, you, you've worked as a critic. You you write prose, but. When did you get stuck on this notion that I can actually write poetry that would self be in some ways incendiary and, and necessarily so? Um, that's a really cool question. I, I don't have a prepared answer on that or anything like that. We didn't, Tony not. did not let me see the questions beforehand. I did try. Um, but thinking about that question, like there, is, there are like a handful of, of works I could probably point to that I found like quite 
annoying and it was initially the experience was rage like the initial experience is quite a lot of frustration and it wasn't actually at first that history of settler writing because there's a kind of license that you give to the past where you're like you know what I don't have to deal with you right now you're in a period that is not my period it's whatever you're all terrible back then I'm, I'm not worrying about that like you can kind of take that sort of license but what I encountered was this weird asceticized nationalism in um, a couple of contemporary poets a few contemporary Australian poets and I won't name names but like not here but if you ask me, I will name names. <laughs> they can send an email. I've already sent a group email like, hey, read my book. You're subtweeted in it. Um, and it was this, you know, like one was like a, a, a bush opera and there was, there was this absurd language of like, um, you know, a choir of dingo elders and this bizarre, really like nostalgic, sort of ironic but actually not really ironic um, recuperation of tropes of Australiana and it, they were not being brought up or interrogated in a responsible way. It was this weird kind of just dangling around of kitschy ideas and that that made me quite frustrated and I ended up writing Drop Bear Poetics like as the individual poem of Drop Bear Poetics just because I was seeing a bit of that phenomenon. And once I started looking for it, it became incredibly apparent. You know, it's in the, you know, the the pretty skinny young white woman describing her body as a ghost gum and the kind of erasure. And Robert Gray as well, he, you know, he wrote about a ghost gum as a nude descending the stair. Not, you know, and this kind of weird projection of whiteness, of white bodies, of white culture onto a landscape to make it seem naturalised, mm-hmm. you know, to imagine the ghosts in the bush as being white ghosts. That was quite distressing for me because it's kind of like we're having our own erasure erased now. We're having our own kind of hauntological presence of country being turned into this weird, kitschy nightmare. And mm-hmm. I just... I, I know that it's relatively low-hanging fruit, like a couple of Mm. weird experimental poets making strange dingo elder remarks and stuff, but it was something that I knew was the result. We were always going to end up here because Australia has a literary idea of itself that is in constant negotiation about the, the... Like, it's constantly trying to resolve the fact that that whiteness does not understand itself in the landscape, that colonisers could not see themselves as recognised by the land and the land was not responsive to them. To them, They found it harsh, they found it unyielding, it didn't want them and now they have developed this whole literature that on the one hand tries to cutify that, you know, with your snuggle pot and your cuddle pie babies and then on the other hand it tries to like haunt it and to mm. represent it as this ghostly, demonic, gothic place and either end of that spectrum, it yeah. still erases black voice. It's interesting because um, when I was working as an academic, there was a remarkable seminal essay by a French writer, Pierre Nora, a theorist, but he uses the term imperial nostalgia. Mm. And what he would argue is that once the in the colonial settler's mind that the, the native has been eradicated, yeah. that they fill that space with their own nostalgic yeah. attachment to country. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about what I see as 
I think it's relative to this point and it's, it's a deep frustration and a legitimate, of course, frustration that comes out of your work and that is so if we, if we go from that sort of erasure to what we might see as seeming acknowledgement, mm. um, but I think in, in a poem of yours, acknowledgement to country, um, as it's pronounced specifically, what that poem to me is really about as an Aboriginal person is that it's that what can be the shallowness of acknowledgement, what can be again another absence in acknowledgement or what can, what can be another form of erasure. And the only um, time I'll read from Evelyn's book, because she's going to read for us in a moment, I just would say here this wonderful um, stanza, I would like all this acknowledged and to remain everyone, to remind everyone that we are meeting on land stolen, remind everyone how sad it is, you all died, to remind everyone that you're all dead on stolen or silent, how sad it is. I would like respect and acknowledgement for all this respect and acknowledgement. It's, I mean, the, the intention there is clear. Can you elaborate on, on, on what, what produced that poem? Yeah, it was a poetry reading in Sydney where everyone had two minutes to read a poem and there were like eight people and we were all gathered into this weird little dingy bar thing and um, every single person insisted on... And I was the last person reading of the night and then like we ran, almost ran out of time because every single non... Aboriginal person insisted on giving like a two-minute acknowledgement and like we'd had an acknowledgement at the start and it just became this exhausting performance. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm going to read a poem and I'm just like, yeah, I get it, you. And they're all, it's all the same acknowledgement too. Like for me, an acknowledgement of country should actually be an opportunity to think responsibly about how you're engaging with a place, what that means for you and to actually speak honestly to that, not to just download the stock standard thing off of the internet and it was just the performativity of it was exhausting and it's kind of also re-traumatizing like it just ends up I know that in their head they think that it's like oh we're so respectful but it just it sounds like gloating at that point it's like we we colonized you and we feel bad about it but that eight times like oh god they're lucky that I only swore once in that poem as far as I'm concerned don't lose your audience. Um, <laughs> I want to. I mean, I suppose as, as um, I'm a hobbyist, as a poet, um, I dip into it occasionally and then escape back to fiction. We Which make, I'm furious about because you write insanely good poetry. We, we, we make more money as fiction writers. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Um, so. I I um, interviewed Anita Heiss the other night, which was just wonderful. And she was talking about the language project that she's been a student mm. of. There's a wonderful la- language project that involves Uncle Stan Grant, but a whole group of Wiradjuri elders. And it's a remarkably generous project mm. because they, they were also teaching whitefellas, teachers who are going to go back into community and teach Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids. So that these elders are doing remarkable work. And one of the things that um, Anita said is that um, you can't just speak language, you have to think language. And... This is probably the most esoteric question that, that I'm going to ask you, but when I do poetry, I, I occasionally think about writing a poem, but I think as a fiction writer, I think as a storyteller. My sense is you, you think as a poet. Mm. So how does that... I'm not here talking about how you make a poem, but thinking as a poet, how do you engage with the world? When, do, when does it come into your sort of psyche that this has to something of around language and form has to be now 
availed to, to respond to this issue that concerns me or, if, or even to respond to this attraction of an idea? Mm. Well, that's, again, a really cool question because it's something that, um, you know, I kind of noticed retrospectively about a lot of my own prose that I was initially... I thought it was purple prose, like I thought it was excessive and really just overdetermined and I was having a lot of trouble with generating anything long form. And like thinking about some of the writers that, you know, I I was reading as a young person, like some of the first really literary writers that I was I was enjoying, like Michael Ondaatje, and I was reading mm-hmm. his novels and I read his poetry after and then I found out he was a poet. He was a poet before he was a novelist. And it makes so much sense when you look at the ways in which his novels are structured, this idea that, like, yeah, one does actually think through a certain form that seems more natural to them. And certain things that I I do in my poetry, and I don't want to necessarily show you all of my tells because you'll start to notice that every poem's a like a relatively mathematical combination of, like, oh, weird grammar, stark short line, long line, script, it just, it, it's, it, don't look at it like that. Um, but, you know, some of those grammatical things came from learning language and thinking about actually, like, how does a sentence reflect um, different philosophies of, like, land as central and humanness mm. as kind of subservient to that as, like, in working in relation to that. So, thinking about, um, uh, you know, what is the subject and the object and, and that kind of stuff. You can do that in poetry and you can move an experiment with that in poetry that is probably unbearable at the length of mm-hmm. prose. And mm-hmm. also recognising that my brain does kind of compartmentalise certain interests and narratives about, mm. you know, a different experience or a different place in a way that a, you know, a segment of that thought, a fragment of that thought... Um, I feel like can have a conversation with somebody as opposed to me having to explain fully what I think about an idea. And that sounds quite abstract, but like a couple of the poems, I just picked like the tiniest little bit of the story to tell. Like if I'd told the whole story about something, you would have probably judged me. Um, But to pick you know, a poignant moment around that. Like, you know, there's a handful of poems where I talk about my grandmother and that's a complex history and presence. And so, like, what I ended up talking about was, like, smoking ceremonies. And Mm -hmm. I feel like in a poem you can sidestep the story and that might be because you don't want to tell the story or it might be because the story is not yours to tell. But speaking adjacent to it, I feel like you can do that in poetry, whereas in fiction an editor would be like, how have you just danced around this entire story mm. so at such a distance that we actually know nothing about what's going on, you know? Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned Undachi, um, one of the things that's noticeable in the literally the physical concrete form of the poetry, looking mm. at the pages, I was very much reminded of the collective works of Billy the yeah. Kid, which is one mm. of his seminal works. And it's interesting, that's such a... For poets and for a writer like me, that's like a seminal text yeah. and that's that's clear. A related question then that, that interests me again, and, and here primarily as a writer as much as a reader, several of the poems are, you know, yeah, what we, it's hard, you know, prose narrative style yeah. or prose, prose poem, you know, and people argue what is a prose poem, but, you know, just looking again in a concrete form, mm-hmm. um, 
I'm interested here in that, so when you, again, say the formation or the, the energy around wanting to write a poem, and then looking at the page, thinking of, you know, looking at black on white, the, the concrete structure, when is it that, or how is it do you sense that your creative self is drawn to the notion of, of this being that long line, or this suited, this idea, or what you call that moment, suited to a, na- a more narrative form? Well, I think... Um the kind of variation of form and, and style and whether, it, you know, like there are some poems that are in big blocks of, you know, of, of caps, lock, caps locked um, uh, uh, text and then you've got some that are kind of in a little bit more of a broken up lyrical structure and then I've got quite a few poems that are just paragraph, you know, no grammar or anything like that in it, no, no um, punctuation mm-hmm. marks in them at all. And I would probably be able to go through with everyone and go like, no, this is why I think this. But it speaks to how much of poetry is actually kind of written in the galleys. Like I used to write poems and they were never like that good because I would write them and I would get to a place where I was kind of like okay with them and then I wouldn't I wouldn't really look at them further than that. I would just kind of go like, right, this is this is said what I need to say, right? And learning that poetry is more of poetry is editing than the actual writing, really. And like that's a kind of in- intricacy and detail that requires patience. And from the experience of now like going through um, going through edits and and endless kind of copy editing and stuff. Like, it should be communal. I actually really, I found myself enjoying the communal aspect of that constant feedback and, you know, discussions and negotiations over the way that a text could be presented became quite interesting. But there's certainly patterns of, like, a few of the poems um, that are those, you know, all capitals, um, attempting to be as aggressive as they possibly can be on a page. Mm. Those are absolutely poems, that, like, in my head. Like, those are shouted. Those are poems. The ones in capitals. Yeah. My mum writes emails like that to me. <laughs> oh, it's well, your mum's really politically motivated and she's just like, this is going to be read at a rally. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, what we're going to do now is that I'm, there's a, a, I'm going to ask that you respond to a, a comment that was um, from opening night and then I'm going to switch. I've, I've got my theory now, my theory on you. And we're going to... He's got my, me. My theory is going to be proven by the readings that you've agreed to do for us. But... I picked up this quote from the opening night address that you're involved in with Tara Jim Winch um, and Melissa Lukashenko, which was so mighty. Um, you said, and I am paraphrasing slightly because um, I couldn't find the quote again, um, you would like to write happier poems, but there isn't time. And that for me was the key that there isn't time. What do you mean by that? We are living in a existential but predominantly climactic crisis. Mm -hmm. It is one that we cannot imaginatively distance ourselves from with utopian thinking. A poem is never going to resolve the issue of, of rising sea levels, of the resulting effect that that will have on um, uh, water toxicity and we're already seeing communities in the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Solomon Islands who are going through that. They, you know, the water is rising around them and it is undrinkable. Um, uh, There are so many disastrous um, uh, 
crisis circumstances that are not far on our horizon. And I think it should be the responsibility of every creative form to be orientated towards that, to act in mind of that. And, like, I want to write the lovely, happy, sentimental things, but I, I think poetry has a responsibility, language has a responsibility, and the platform that I have as a writer that, you know, for some reason you guys all decided to come here today, I think it's it's crucial to actually orientate work towards those responsibilities and that accountability. And at the very least, like, if we can't affect any kind of change, at least we can witness it and at least we can document it because that's how history is rewritten with this idea that nobody said anything and that we were all ignorant to violence, ignorant to injustice. Mm -hmm. We were not ignorant. We Mm. were here, you know, we witnessed it and we saw it. And then, you know the nice happy poem that comes out of that should be a place of like peace, of rest and solace that actually kind of fills you up to keep on going, doing the work that you need to do. That, it's not to say, I, I didn't mean to imply that there shouldn't be good happy poems in the world, but they should be thinking about how do we pause, how do we rest and then how do we keep on moving to do the work that we need to do. You've stolen my theory. Yeah, I... Um, so I the, saw which poem you opened it up at. So, and I was like, yeah. So I know. What, I, what I was going to say, and I, I wrote this down as, as well, is that, well, but I don't have to read it because it comes <laughs> with the acceptance of responsibility. Yeah. And I think for Aboriginal people, and not only, it's hard work. There's yeah. a lot of work. And that hard work can cause burnout. I, I, yeah, I've talked to Aboriginal senior elders and activists and intellectuals and creative types who say, yeah, this is hard work. And it's like Uncle Wayne Atkinson in Victoria who's done a mm. lot of environmental work. He says it's like a bushfire where there's a spot fire, you rush and yeah. put it out, then there's another one over there and in the end you find yourself exhausted. So, yeah, when I read the book, I, I actually thinking as well as it, loving the poetry – Evelyn's really doing the hard lifting here, the heavy lifting, but um, I don't want to disassociate the poems I now want to mention and talk about as a, you know, as an absence of responsibility, but there were several poems where I thought they were just purely beautiful, there was a, a quietness to them, there was a peace, and what I felt in the reading was that it's almost like you had given yourself some breathing space to step out of the capitalised anger and the ever-presence of colonial violence and to say something which sustains you. And here, to make the point that it's not unrelated, when you write poems about the love of family, clearly they're also engaged with, yeah, we don't have time because that love of family is about the people on country you care about. So I would like you to read my very favourite poem from the collection, so you see what a softy I am. Um, see it's you my toni- favourite poem too. See you tonight. So we're going to ask Evelyn to read See You Tonight and then I want to ask just a couple of things about it. Yeah. We're losing light now but never rhythm. Spilling between house and yard. Mum's got her feet up and I'm making that curry you all like. Dad's in the shed but he'll hear if we call. The sky burns vermilion behind the gums stretching from our trickle of South Creek. A corella keening in its hollow. Every night is this one. The same sun browning our shared limbs on its way to sink over a city that's too far for us to care. Take long walks. Play with the dogs. Tell me how was work after I scream at you for stealing my shoes again. Did you see that big roo coming in? Heat rising from the scrub. 
Go look at Mum's new quilt. She used that red blossom print you liked. At the table, tell the one about finding the owl in the van. Remember those white gums across from the old house. We always said we'd swim the dam one day. You play bunyip, I'll be drop bear. Your arm still hurts some nights from my bike. So do my dreams. If all we get from history is each other, isn't that plenty? I hope this living is long enough for me to bathe your children, to brush their hair. I'm saving them that book of bush songs, those gum nut onesies. Cicadas wail to the moon watching us above silhouettes. Didn't she ever tell you that one? It's all good. I will. I will. I will. Got through it without crying. <laughs> First time that's happened. So, I mean, there's just so much wonder in the poem, but if all we get from history is each other, isn't that plenty? Um, in a way to get you to answer with some sense of how this poem was crafted and sculpted and formed, reading the poem and having, you know, this is near the end of the collection, and having to engage with you, like whether by will or force, to, to engage with the issues that are really driving this collection, which again are issues that require a lot of work. There, there are issues of, of great emotion. There are issues of frustration and anger. I don't see this poem as stepping away from that. It's almost in getting to this poem towards the end, this is the hub. It's, this is why all this work is yeah. matters. They're coming back to family and the, yeah, the intimacy of the domestic, you know. Yeah. It's that then it puts all of that work into context. So it's not... Uh, it's not a sentimental poem. It's not a happy poem in that shallow way. It's To me, it's the foundation stone of the whole collection. And my only, my only frustration is, as, as Aboriginal people is that that rock of solidity that keeps us going is that it's often not recognised. I, I don't want to talk about my work except to say when I wrote The White Girl, I found mm. it astounding that part of it was to have to prove to people that we love our children. Yeah. Which is what Aboriginal people... Yeah. Yeah, when children were taken, it was because these people don't love their children, they mm. don't care for their children. So I think it's a remarkable poem. So can you give us some sense of how yeah. that was sculpted? Well, like, and kind of on that, like... You should read, everyone should read The White Girl and it's a, there are details and there are kind of intimate moments in The White Girl that like maybe not everyone, you know, maybe if you're not black, like and if you haven't had similar experiences with displacement and distance from family, like there's like moments of like, you know, the way that like photos are used in that and like references to that and there's like this kind of um, central experience that a lot of us have had of trying to dig up from the archives like the little that we can find of of who we were before you know before removals invasion any like just finding some kind of presence of that and you know that line like if all we get from history is each other isn't that plenty is my own kind of way of just thinking about like this 
this emphasis on proving, you know, proving that we love our children, proving that there was harm that occurred and that, you know, we don't need a royal commission to say that, like, when, you know, 478 given that there were four deaths in custody uh, over the last seven days, um, 478 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the findings of the Royal Commission into um, uh, uh, into Indigenous deaths in custody. Um, you know, like, we don't, we don't need to be constantly proving, but we, we have to. We constantly have to justify our existence. And, like, there's an extent to which that that work is important there, absolutely is and we need to be constantly asserting that rhetoric and we need to be constantly asserting um you know our our survival and resistance and resilience but also like you know dear god like my family is everything and I adore them and like if that's if you know like and I'm so lucky to have them and to find ways of like honoring and respecting them is amazing and incredible if anyone tried to hurt me hurt any of them this, this would be a different collection like this would be like a list of names of people I'm going to kill um that's drop I like two. to see that poem yeah we're working on that one um but yeah like I wrote I wrote that poem after eight months of not being able to see any of them because I got stuck in lockdown in Melbourne. Mm. And that's not the same experience of being forcibly removed from your family. Mm. It's absolutely not. But sometimes things ring too close and it's yeah. too uncomfortable. And so that poem I wrote literally just as my way of kind of like filling a space that was empty because of them with just this imagination of like, What's a normal day going to look like when I go home? Like, yeah. what is what is that return going yeah. to be? And that, I mean, that um, the great pleasures I got with the with the white girl were Blackfellas talking about the teapot yeah. on the table. That's like the the sort of the shrine, you yeah. know. That's a, and or that you know, talking. And I'm a bit nostalgic about the you know fried bread and mm. everyone talking about how they remember having fried bread at their granny's place and. Yeah, I tried to give it to my kids, they'd throw it at me. Um, I'm going to um, get you to read in a moment another poem that was really vital to me. That's Hold. Can you read Hold yes. for us, please? Holding loud night for a moment, thinking of the word for moon in the language I didn't know when I came here last. We have nothing to say to each other except everything. I know these trees by the throat but there's new late leaves for the horizon to halo, to slice that last little light on your face. For the last offerings before the streetlights start to splutter the dark. I should take responsibility, and you said you were going to be kind. Are you breaking the past enough? Have I buried enough dead? Not all that haunts is ghost, and I'm so sorry to be so living so loud, so tell me why you dragged me into this. Done and gone and grown, not all that holds must hurt. The night has no room for more dusk, but hold it still, a little longer, a little warm, a little care still, like the edge of afterglow, the scatter of sunset, the not here, the not now. Let none of this run parallel. Just soft. Let it sleep. There's enough light out there. Clap. Um, I mean, again, yeah, I, 
I love the whole collection, but this particularly struck me because this is slightly different than the poem we just we listened to previously. Um, but what again was important in this poem, you know, when you write about a little warm, a little care, like the edge of an afterglow, it's as if needing that respite from the war, mm. as if needing that respite from battle. And again, it goes back to the notion that we talked about is that it's not stepping away, but you need that, the word, I think the key word in this poem is care. Mm. You need that yeah. care and we need that care for each other. And yet when you talked about we don't have time earlier, about why we need to this sense of urgency around the protection of the planet, you know, care for each other, etc. So there is this urgency. It seems that we can't do it and we will burn out and we will expire unless we also find ways, well, mm. for want of a better term, to nurture ourselves yeah. and each other. Yeah, absolutely. And like some of these poems and the, the, the two particularly that I've read, like I wanted them to act as kind of stopovers in the collection as a kind of way of like modelling that structure of like rage and, um, you know, even analysis. Like the, there's quite a few like more academic poems or archival poems that are attempting to directly speak to like the work that we have to do um, within and outside of the academy or to undermine the academy and its role in kind of representing and re-representing um, Aboriginal stories, but also like stories of the working class, of the oppressed, of women, and like all of these different structures of erasure. And in Drop Bear, like the last thing that I wanted to do is claim any kind of like moral superiority. Like I'm critiquing Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie here. Like I'm not like I'm not out there like, you know like burning stuff down in the way that I probably, you know, will later on in my career when I care less about getting arrested. But I think it's important when we're talking about the kinds of critique, the kinds of resistance, the kinds of protest that we do in just our everyday negotiation, whether that be an institution, whether that be a text, like, or a random person talking to you on the street, like, there's the rage and the fury, but there also needs to be the care. And then many of the poems in this collection deal with things that I honestly wouldn't be able to say is just a clear-cut love-hate relationship. Like, I talk a lot about the books that I grew up with and the images and the ideas that these books represent. And they're not they're not something that I'm able to completely dispose of even through no, critique. No, no. And so balancing care and love and rest is, I think, just being honest to the fact that, like, this is not a cancel culture book or anything like that. Mm. There's nothing holistic about what I'm trying to do there. It's just attempting to be a bit honest to that structure. And that's interesting because there's, there's a, a sense of the collective in that poem. I've got a relative a related question which is sort of a preoccupation of mine you just talked about I can't completely dispose of that yeah. now one of Australia's great writers and one of the Aboriginal Australia's greatest writers is, is, is Alexis Wright and I've been interviewed Alexis many times and one of the things I learned from Alexis Alexis has read the the, uh, the English canon the European canon so widely and she would never dispose of what she has gained from it so in other words she's she's absolutely articulate in representing um, Indigenous autonomy and authority, but mm -hmm. she sees value in those other forms, as well as critique as you've yeah. done in this collection. 
I suppose to ask a really basic question then, it's, you know, as you know, my day job was looking at climate justice and one of the conclusions that I've reached and many people have reached and my work with SEED, the Indigenous Climate Activist Group, is pretty simple, that whatever problems or whoever's responsible for the damage to country, mm. unless we find ways to work cooperatively amongst different vested interests, we can't save country. So in relationship to your sort of sensibility about that, you said this is not a cancel culture book, which, which of course it isn't. How do you see yourself able to work or are you interested in working in a, in a collaborative, productive way across mm. different cultures? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to like understanding your own abilities and capacity and like really trying to work with what you feel is like a strength of your of your own ability and like you know I feel like poetry and writing and literature is really important because it actually gives language to others to help them talk and have these conversations whether that be having that conversation with you know their mates who just don't really understand an issue or whether that be like actively going out there and publicly defending issues and causes and you know writing policy or leading protest like literature and language has a role in not just this broader like making aware because we don't if we spend our times people our, our, our you know lives just endlessly like making people aware of injustice we'll never actually do anything we actually have to act now as if we had the capacity to affect change even if we don't because the action will create solidarity it will create you know these sort of rhythms and patterns of support and just the kind of microcosm of what I do attempt to do in terms of literature is like I had a good educate well I mean you Depending on, you know, I had an education um, and, and I have certain skills and abilities in terms of analysis and reading and literature there that, like, I'm able to use and employ to do deconstructive work that means that maybe something that was a wall to me is rubble for the next person in this particular space. And I think that's really important. You know, we talk a lot about, like, the master's tools and the master's house and all of that kind of stuff. And, like... Jonathan Dunk, my co-editor at Overland uh, Literary Journal, has this really cool remark that he made on that, which is like, if you're going to try to break down the master's house, regardless of what the tools are, you've got to be prepared for the possibility that it might fall in on you. And taking up that responsibility and take doing work that you get entangled in and work that is complex and work that you might not even be able to be like morally or ethically completely comfortable with, like that's something that I think people who are prepared to do that should do and that becomes like an act of solidarity for the next person who wasn't able to do that. But now that you've done that, they can go do that other thing. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to have two questions and then state your name and don't touch the microphone. Just give it a lick. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Lejeune um, and uh, in Drop Bear you write a lot about... Um, liminality and so sunsets, sunrises, landscape in motion and then obviously haunting. Um, and this is kind of a broad question but what was your intention with using that in relation to some of the more tangible themes of sovereignty and reclamation? Mm. Well, first thing, Lejeune's like an incredible poet and like is going to be up here like next year. So just, just you know, keep that in your minds. 
Yes, that's an interesting and cool question and one that we might need to discuss at a later time. Um, no, um, I think that uh, I think that when we think about um, sovereignty, like sovereignty is a project, it's not a state. It's something that we, um, you know, when we when I'm sitting here acknowledging Gadigal sovereignty, when I'm acknowledging the sovereignty of your direct nation on this place, like it's not that I am trying to disillusion myself with this this utopian fantasy of some kind of symbolic um, power. Like, no, we need real power. We need actual power. We need political power. We need environmental power. Like, those are all incredibly important things. We are having to settle with liminality and we're having to settle with these kinds of symbolic gestures that are actually not in any way connected to the to real change and real affect in that. And so, like, um, these liminal, the sunset and, you know, the afterglow and all of these kinds of strange positionalities that many peoples with histories of colonisation, with histories of um, any kind of distance from the imposed sovereignty of the settler colonial state, they're familiar spaces and they can be incredibly productive. Not to get to one or two of the other side, like you're not in that space trying to walk through a door and suddenly now I've got privilege and I'm just a part of the problem for the other person who's left in that space. The liminal space is actually where you can organise. The liminal space is where you can create solidarity. It's where you can support others who are from similar shared or entirely disparate experiences and share resources. And um, like, you know, it's the whole post-colonial literary thing of this third space, this liminality of like, oh, am I within or without? Um, no, I'm exactly where I need to be and where I want to be and I will do what I need to do within that space without feeling compelled to enter into A or B kind of category. And I think, again, like the project of this book, I, I hope, you know, kind of is about embracing the complexity of our own entanglement within different literary ideas and images and imaginations of a settler colonial invading state. You know, you're not a bad person because you like Dot and the Kangaroo. You've got bad taste, but, you know, you're not a bad person, <laughs> you know. And that's all, they all sound like weird brain map metaphor things, but they're all, I promise they're all interconnected. I hope you believe me. Um, if not, read the book. And if you don't like it, I mean, can you refund books? Like sell it to someone or something like I don't know yeah yeah anyway that's a really cool question and it's one we'll talk about later in your work as well um yeah okay so we've we've got one more um questioner hi dad how was the drive pretty good don't touch the mic um it's a gender question for both of you um I live in the Hawkesbury which is pretty much another country um quite isolated but I'm very, very conscious that there's some very powerful women mm. um, in Western Sydney who are doing some very interesting things. I'm, I'm just going to... Actually, I'm going to promote them. Um, sorry, I'm stealing your thunder here. But You're still pissed off I got a book before you. You're still mad. <laughs> Maybe. Can we have a family dispute <laughs> Maybe. At, at the... At the but, <laughs> but apart from... Apart from you... Yeah. Um... We've also got further up the river, we've got um, Kazan Brown and her daughter, Taylor Clark, who are fighting to save the Gundungurra land and stop the dam wall being built. 
Uh, we've got Darragh women, a number of Darragh women who, Janice Seymour is one, um, who are doing a lot to revive the Darragh language. They've just, um, they've just published online um, a very, very important work called the Darubbin Story Map, um, which some people are obviously familiar with, which is basically publicising the rediscovery of the Aboriginal language of the of the Hawkesbury River and, and the, um, the McDonald River. And it's just going to change the way in which we think of country out there. But the question, again, you fellows have obviously got a lot more wealth of experience than I have in this, but I'm very, very conscious of the role of Aboriginal women in reinventing, reinventing, preserving um, the culture and, and fighting, fighting to do this um, against enormous odds. Mm. And I'm just curious, mm. do you have any thoughts about, you know, gender and the role of women Mm. Uh, in this, and again, I'm, I'm coming from a very narrow perspective geographically. Yeah, no, no, um, like there's poems in here. You know the role that Aunty Gloria, you know, sort of like and her teaching and stuff and, um, you know, and, and I never got to meet her, but Aunty Charlotte, uh, like a lot of those women out in Brewarrina too, like black women are incredibly central in all of these movements and his, these histories of, um, you know, every organisation established like in a place like Redfern, like Mum Shell and the work that she did with the medical centre and the legal centre, like every every inch taken back, like connects back to somewhere like a black woman, like protesting, you know, Maria Locke writing in 1842, like give me my land back through the white system because you gave it to my brother and now he's dead and it's my land, but also through the black system because I am the daughter of the chief of the Richmond River tribes, as, as she used. Like, I am an Aboriginal woman, that's my land. Like, it all it all endlessly circles back to that. And again, like, that's the white girl. Like, that's the, that's the whole point of the white girl. And you don't present these women as if they're like this sort of symbolic, strange idea of a um, uh, very externalised idea of, like, a strong black woman. You present women who, like, survived horrible stuff and the, their rewards are not the kind of rewards that other people would have necessarily seen as being sufficient for their suffering, but they are the rewards that for black people are just so important. And, like, the white girl is, you know... I think it's a good thing to do, like, as a man, like, to write a book that does that work to celebrate women. Well, I, I, and I'll answer the question out of respect to your dad. I don't want to steal your air, um, but I think I, the only things I'd say is I'm lucky that I'm surrounded by women. Yeah, you know, I have five daughters. No, four daughters. I've, one of them's a son. Four daughters and a son. <laughs> um, and incredible aunties and uncles and mum. But to go to the question specifically, um, in my life as an academic, my main project, which I'm going to be doing a thing for um, Alexis at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, is looking at Aboriginal women's writing mm. on reserves and missions in mm. Victoria. And they're, they're, not, they're not just the heartbeat of the home, they're the heart 
heartbeat of political action. So here you're talking about Aboriginal women threatened with being jailed, threatened with having their children taken, demanding rights for Aboriginal people. And one of my great heroes, a woman called Bessie Rawlings on Framlingham Aboriginal Reserve, wrote letters for 40 years demanding rights for Aboriginal people. And in the end, they were so sick and tired of it, they burnt her house to the ground. And what Bessie Rawlings did as her last act of defiance was retrieve four pieces of iron from the roof and build herself a humpy and said, I'm staying. So, Mm. you know, that um, that, that is the political history. And it's a shame that these women are unknown. They never wanted to be known. They never wanted public recognition, but they're not known. And I remember a past Prime Minister of ours, a man called John Howard, talked about a a history of statues and and heroes. There are Aboriginal heroes out there and no one knows who they are. Um, But it goes in closing to to comment, I think, on, on the remarkable work that Evelyn has done, is that these times that we're in are challenging times and they require challenging conversations. They require conversations between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. What I would implore upon people is to accept the challenge of those conversations. And for all of us, they're difficult. They're no easier for Aboriginal Mm. people than non-Aboriginal people. And those conversations are about trying to enact change. And I think what Evelyn's done in this remarkable collection is putting out a very generous challenge. It's a very generous challenge to all of us to think about this country in a way that will allow us to change this country, to not live in a recalcitrant, stubborn country, but one that is interested in ideas. And what these poems are about are really interesting ideas. Um, So I want you to thank Evelyn generously and to let you know, of course, that now that the session is over, Evelyn will be available to sign books and she said she'll talk to you all day if you want to. So please thank Evelyn. (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm clapping myself. I just do that instinctively. Clap you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.